Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 311, Carrie Vaughn. And now, constructed on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy media. This is Brent Bowen. And Christy Cherish. And today we are joined by Carrie Vaughn, where Christy, a couple weeks ago, had the opportunity to chat with Carrie about Kitty Saves the World, the final Kitty Norvell novel. And a quick preview of that. What, what should we expect out of that conversation? It so it was a cool conversation. I I'm, I'm a big fan of Carrie Vaughn because uh, I read her other books as well. Um, her her superhero series and yep. she's really great. She talked a bit about publishing. She talked a bit about writing. She talked about the book. She talked about um, whether or not she was going to go into doing um, uh, offshoot series and the potential for that. Um, she talked about some of the difficulties. Between having gone from her urban fantasy to going to um, her Golden Age series, mm-hmm. which isn't urban fantasy. It, it's much more of a, it's a little more thought-provoking superhero fiction. It's still fun. It's still interesting, but it doesn't follow the patterns. And she talks a bit about that, just the difficulties and the differences and decisions she had to make during the publishing process. And we talked a bit about literary fiction versus commercial fiction. And it's interesting because my definition, and, and she pointed this out, isn't the same as the one she normally or she would use. So we talked a bit about that. Carrie's one of those authors who's, um, she always has something poignant and interesting to say. So she's always an interesting person to, to listen to. So yeah, that was the interview. All right. Awesome. Well, it'll be fun to, li- I wish, I, I think I was traveling at the time you were conducting that interview, but I'm actually about halfway through after the golden age, the first yeah. book in her superhero yeah. series. And so as you're talking about taking tropes and kind of spinning them on, on their head and taking a, a different approach, it's very has, it certainly fits within some of the young adult category too, because you have a protagonist that has been in a family of superheroes and to some degree is kind of very anti-superhero. So very, very interesting read and I can't wait to, to hear the interview. So that'll be awesome to hear Carrie and hear where she's going beyond Kitty Norville and, and those novels. Before we get into the interview, you and I wanted to discuss two topics that were that are very timely, one in particular very timely. Yes, and definitely. We're, <laughs> definitely. And we're going to have to tread a little bit lightly because you and I are both planning on attending Worldcon, and we don't want to break any code of conduct rules for, for Worldcon. But earlier in the week, uh, there was a little bit of a saga that was going on tied to Worldcon with Lou Antonelli and some remarks he made about uh, David Gerald. And since then, there's been apologies and statements from Sasquan, and a lot of the stems from Lou had uh, filed a, a essentially... Uh, report to the Spokane, sent a letter to the Spokane police referring to that David would be a threat at the convention and they should uh, essentially block his entrance to to the convention. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with a number of, you know, past internet exchanges, what have you. And because of that, you know, Sasquan came back out and issued a statement that originally just, I think, just within the last 24 hours, so you're spe- you and I are speaking on a Thursday. Yeah, I, I think it was either late Tuesday or early Wednesday. Sasquan issued a statement that they were going to uh, essentially refund, lose Sasquan membership, and then restrict his access to the convention. But since there was an apology made to David, and David came forward and actually expressed to the individuals at at uh, the convention that. Lou being that he's a Hugo nominee should be allowed and because there was an apology made and he felt it sincere that he should be allowed to attend and so you've got that angle of it which did I miss anything in that I know you and I were both doing the reading on what was happening with that statement and I gave the very cliff notes version of that what what did I miss on that no I I think you know because again we we don't want to get into um 
you know, South Point's right around the corner, and there are codes of conduct and stuff. So, um, no, I, I think that's about. I think that's about dead on. Um, you know, it. Um, I think the only other thing to maybe add on that is that the uh, initial. I guess the the report about the letter that that Lou had sent out came about because he was on a podcast and made reference to it, and um, I, I guess uh, got caught up in the the discussion of the Hugos and and such, and um, and and so that's how this all came to light. So maybe that's the only other thing to um, you know discuss. It's interesting because if he hadn't have discussed it on that podcast, the question then is, would it have ever come to light? <laughs> Sure. Yeah, if he hadn't been forthcoming in a public forum, and it wasn't our podcast, it wasn't our podcast. No, it was not our podcast. <laughs> a podcast. A podcast wasn't our podcast. It was a podcast, and and so you have you have that fact based scenario around the letter being exchanged in Sasquan. It also said you know there was discussion around whether the the letter had in fact been delivered to the Spokane police and Sasquan had confirmed with the police department that it in fact had so everybody can go on that Sasquan uh, the convention has published uh, their findings and their decision on a Facebook post that we'll include in the show notes so people can read up on that but I the thing that was probably more interesting to me about what was taking place was Lou had placed a story with uh, publisher and the editor, Carrie Kewen, and the name of her, we were just talking about this, the name of, it's something circus, right? Lakeside Circus? Lakeside Circus, and had placed a story, and then based on everything that Carrie had seen happening, decided, you know, this isn't the venue for the story and author, I, I can't endorse this. So Carrie sent a private letter to Lou, and said, we'll give you a separation fee for the story. Here's the situation, but I just don't feel like this is going to be right for our, our publication. Carrie ended up then posting a blog expressing that Lou had made that letter public with some modifications from her originally delivered letter. So there's yes. some modifications. What's most interesting about this to me is that there was a lot of vitriol shared, according to Carrie, to her. Particularly around, so we, you know, we've been talking about diversity. I know a lot of the other podcasters like Skiffy and Fanti have been focusing on diversity, but a lot of that vitriol's poked, according to Carrie's, poked fun at her socioeconomic status. And we've been talking a lot about, you know, sexual orientation, gender, race, religion. But one of the other things we haven't talked about, what was compelling and interesting to me, and it was interesting to me because we're actually. Go on, I'm expecting to see a blog post from one of our newest contributors, Byron Dunn, who's been doing the, the new books published each week. He just recently attended the Kansas City Comic Con. And one of his perspectives from Kansas City Comic Con was this notion of diversity at the convention. And what struck him, I don't want to steal his thunder, but what struck him was the socioeconomic component of the diversity. And he has a whole story he's kind of shaping around this in his uh, convention report that he's going to be doing. But that's not something we've spoken a great deal about. It's really not. You know, I think it's another incredibly important part of diversity outside of things that are maybe more um, more visible and get identified a little more in the media is, yeah, like they're, um, you know, in, in Canada, the States, uh, you know, North America, you've got a lot of socioeconomic, you know, variability. And, you know, it's that question of, where do, do we see that segregated in fandom? Um, you know, do you do you see only certain groups, um, you know, people from certain socioeconomic backgrounds who are able to go to particular conventions, who are able to go to other groups? And, you know, the question of, I, I, I think, I, I kind of feel like it's still socially acceptable in a lot of ways. It's not socially acceptable. And, and you know, as a society, we've got to the point where we we can say it's a problem if people from, a different cultural racial background are not att attending your event because you do want to see diversity and you, you do want to have a group of people, but it's still kind of, and I, I was thinking about this as, you know, while we were talking about 
the other interviews and stuff, um, this was percolating in my head. In a lot of ways, it's still socially acceptable to say, well, you know, it's, it's, we, we hold our convention in, you know, a particular area. We hold our convention in a, you know, it's a certain price. You've got to be able to afford the hotel. You know, it's still socially acceptable to say, well, if you can't afford to come, then you're not a valuable part of the community or you don't have value to add to the community. And that's kind of an interesting thought. Yeah, and I think from a writing community standpoint, we've done a better job. So I'm thinking a lot about the workshops. So if you are somebody that's not well off financially, but you would like an opportunity to participate in Clarion, Mm-hmm. or want to participate. Now, I can't try to remember a Viable Paradise has a scholarship program, and I don't think they do. But Clarion certainly does. Taos Toolbox. I think from a writing community standpoint, we've gotten better about identifying individuals that are willing to learn the craft, apply the craft, and are committed to, to telling story within genre, I think we've been on the for- more on the forefront of including folks of diverse backgrounds, including folks that are not as well off financially to be able to participate in some of those activities. I'm just thinking we're probably lagging from a fandom standpoint, and, and, and I could be wrong, but I'm thinking, okay, so you and I spoke with Mary earlier, you know, a couple months ago, Mary Robin at Koal, a couple months ago, and, you know, if outside of her campaign, a big part of her campaign was if you can't afford to participate, that was one of the, me- she wanted to offer a mechanism for folks that couldn't afford to participate. But even then, you know, we talked about Connor Bust, but even Connor Bust is partially socioeconomic and then it's partially people of color. So mm-hmm. you have to meet that other requirement. So I'm sitting, I was sitting there thinking about maybe our listeners will know and can uh, help us with part of this conversation. It, if we're lagging from a fan standpoint, I feel like from a writing standpoint, we're probably a little bit ahead of where we are from a fan standpoint. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think a lot of, you no, know, and from a writing, you know, standpoint as well, um, a lot of the conventions um, up here, so the, the one the one that we've got in Vancouver, VCon, um, the workshop's free with just your admission. So you can even get like a day membership and then go to the workshop and it's it's free for, for people who, who want to. You know, the libraries as well, they do, um, they, uh, you know, their activities as well are free. So no, and it, also in the community, um, I remember while I was in grad school, I had um, a prominent workshop, um, online workshop um, author, uh, let me attend one of her classes for free because I couldn't afford to do it that semester because I was in grad school. You know, so no, I, I think you're right. I think from that, from the writing community perspective, they're very good at it. Yeah. But from, yeah. A, fan, from a fan standpoint, well, we'll include both links. So uh, folks in the show notes, so folks who listen to the show will be able to to read up on the on the issue, which I'm hoping going forward, you know, we have a week and a half really to the convention. Don't yeah, we, don't we? It's a week and a half, isn't it? Yep. Uh, that this will all stop, <laughs> and it'll become a non-event. There, there will be no more. There will be non-events leading up to and after the event. And it's just going to be fun. Everybody's going to go to the bar and drink and go to a couple of parties. Yeah. What, what is it that the bunny you send me via Facebook, the happy, the happy drink? Evil, no, it's, it's evil drunken bunny. Evil drunken bunny. Oh, come on. It is not evil. That bunny you send me on Facebook is not evil. He is totally evil. And everybody always argues this with me. And I don't know why. Because he's, to- so he's totally evil. He's either got a martini or he's sitting in the martini. There's also him, um, you know, he's got the beer as well. And then he's also got the hula skirt on. And then he's also, there's another picture where he's managed to get somebody's brassiere over his head. So he's totally a drunken evil bunny. A drunken evil. He may be fiendish, but there we go. evil strong. That's really strong. I'm still going to call him, you know, drunken evil or evil drunken bunny. Oh my god! Evil drunken bunny's awesome. We'll have to put a picture of evil drunken bunny up there. We we do need to put it up on the site, sponsored by Evil Drunken Bunny. <laughs> so, speaking of something fiendish, but not, maybe not evil, but fiendish, clever. There's a, a thought experiment about gender, as we were talking about diversity, the, uh, in a blog post that was written on Jezebel by Catherine Nichols that you sent to me and I thought was extremely compelling. I don't know how much I'm going to be able to offer, but 
I thought right. it was extremely compelling. So I'm going to let you tee this one up, and, and, and we'll see if I have any profound thoughts in the next two minutes. All right. So, yeah. So I, you know what? I probably jumped over this one a little bit more because um, I'm an author and I happen to be a female. So it appeals to me in a number of different ways. And it talks about the differences of, or the, you know, the potential for there to be differences between whether or not you portray yourself in public as an author, as a male or a female. And so, uh, so what Catherine did is it's, um, the article's called Home de Plume, which is, I, I thought that was quite clever. I did too. Um, you know, very, very clever. Um, what I learned sending my novel out under a male name. And um, so she was going through a phase where she had been querying, she had started querying out her novel. This was her second novel. And, um, you know, she, she, she is now with, with an agent. Um, she's, you know, this, this is from a while back, I believe. But um, what she ended up doing is, you know, she was, she'd been sending out the query letters. She hadn't been getting a great response. And just, she decided she was going to try it and see what happens if I query as, instead of Catherine Nichols, as George Lair. And so, you know, she sent it out. Uh, she, I think she had queried by this point, she queried about 50 agents under her own name. And she'd gotten like two bites. Yeah. So that's two requests from, two responses from agents who said, yeah, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to see some more of this. And so she sent out the first one for George Lair. And it, she figured, oh, it's going to, you know, maybe a couple of weeks, maybe I won't get anything. Um, and it was the same query letter. That's another important point. So the same one she had used before, just with George instead of Catherine. And um, she ended up getting a message back the next day. So not even a week or two later, the next day. Um, and as she puts it, Mr. Lair, delighted, excited, please send the manuscript. So she was wondering, she, she thought to herself, you know, okay, there, there's a few things that could be going on here. You know, there is, it, it could be that there's, there is in fact a, a bias that somebody looks at the manuscript and, and just expects something different from a male versus a female author. And I thought that was a really interesting observation, mm -hmm. um, you know, or, or thought. It was also that it was just a fluke, you know, and just, it happened to be that you're querying different agents. So they were looking for something else and they would have picked it out as well if she had been a female. Or maybe there was just even something subconscious going on, you know, that even maybe there was just something subconscious going on where even though they were open to the idea of maybe having a female um, client, that there was just that bias happening of, you know, that a male client might be a better client. So she ended up sending out 50 queries as George. Um, she had the manuscript requested 17 times. And so she ended up working out that the same query letter sent to 50 agents as George versus 50 agents, so 100 total as um, Catherine. Uh, he was eight, eight and a half times more likely to get a request. And as she puts it, you know, her, her sort of words were eight and a half times better at writing the same book. So I, so I actually reached out to her on, cause I, I had a couple of, of questions. I was sort of curious what was, you know, what was happening. Um, and I, I reached out to her to find out, did she talk to any of these agents afterwards? Like, did she pursue it at all as George? Um, and she didn't. So as far as it went, she didn't talk to them past just, you know, potentially sending the manuscript. And, you know, if she did, she might not have, you know, she might, it might've just been a thought experiment. She didn't clarify, but she didn't pursue it any further. So she never got to the point where she was talking to somebody and saying, so I'm, I'm actually not George. I'm Catherine. Are you still interested? Um, it, it never went there and she didn't want it to go in that direction, but she had some really interesting observations about the kinds of responses she got for the same novel. So uh, the rejections and, you know, and the give me more. As a female, she would get responses that were along the lines of beautiful writing, but your main character isn't very plucky, is she? But, you know, as, as a man, she wasn't getting the beautiful writing. She was getting well-constructed, clever, exciting. So I, you know, I... I actually thought that was one of the most interesting parts of the article were the kinds of responses she got about the writing. Agree. And it, she even went on and elaborated, I know, in the, the post about 
you know, maybe it's because she had a female protagonist and was being applauded as a man writing a female protagonist. And, and, and I'm going to say realistic. These weren't her words, but the way I interpret it in a realistic way. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's sort of the, you know, is, is there an unbiased, is there sort of this preconceived bias that if you're a woman, you know, that sort of expects you as a woman to write a certain type of character. So you're predisposed to think about it that way. But if a man is writing about a female character and does it sensitive and, you know, or, or is able to sort of do it in a sensitive way, then that's, you know, is, is there a bias that says, wow, that must be a great author. You know, it's, so I, you know, I, I'm, and I'm extrapolating there. So as well, um, it's sort of that idea of even if you would be totally okay, you know, as an, as an agent or an editor with a female or a male client, you don't care either way, but you have a preconceived notion of what kind of a book a woman versus a man writes. And when you see changes or you see variability that excites you. So I, yeah, you know, um, I, I thought that was something very interesting. So there, there is a summary and there is a result coming out of this. Um, you will all start seeing books um, coming out from a, a brand new, exciting na- new debut author named Darren Austin. And um, yeah, that's, it, that's, that is the result out of this. Isn't Darren Austin a character in a Clive Cussler novel? You know, <laughs> you know I figured if it's Clive Cussler... How can you go wrong? Really? <laughs> really? I, I'm not as big a fan of the Austin uh, character as I was with Dirk Pitt. I'm just telling you. Not, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm actually I, it, reading an Austin book right now. Dirk, Dirk Pitt was kind of the, the you know, he, he was the first one. He was the standard. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting you said that, but too, because the other thing she posited in hypothetical was, you know, you know, was she being applauded as a man writing a female character? But if she were to reverse the scenario and be uh, a female author writing a male character, would she receive the same type of uh, reception? Yeah. That's one of the considerations. And when you sent this to me, I found the, the numbers quite striking and, and very compelling. Yes. Uh, around what was at play here. And I wish the experiment would have been taken further. Uh, oh yeah, me too. No, I, I had really been hoping uh, when I when I ended up reaching out to her. She she was lovely. Like I, I do have to say, um, uh, Catherine was wonderful when I tweeted her asking her some questions about the article. Um, that that was really lovely of her to get back to me. So, um, but uh, but yeah, that I I kind of been hoping. I totally understand why she didn't pursue it. But I had kind of been hoping that she'd, you know, she'd ended up having discussions with these people, you know, who were looking for George. And I, I kind of think that if she had gone that route, I think the agents wouldn't have cared. I think they would have been like, awesome, okay. You you're Catherine, your, we're calling you George. You're calling you we're George. With this. And you have your pseudonym figured out. Which, by the way, George isn't, if I remember the, blog, the post correctly, George wasn't the actual pseudonym. But she said, let's call him George, right? Yes, yes. Um, but my first reaction to this, too, was it was interesting because I read a lot of YA, and I've seen on a number of forums a reverse consideration, which at the risk of having knives and all sorts of barbs thrown at me, but the reverse consideration around uh, men writing in the young adult market. So what, what market was she was she writing in? Because, I mean, if you're not Scott Westerfeld or uh, John Green, I mean, there are not a lot of, uh, of male authors in the, the young adult markets. There are more than there have been. but it, And I don't know if that's a preference of the style of writing and the choice of the, uh, the, the books. Are, you, you just don't have a good read on what, what are all the contributing factors to that being uh, yeah. probably a stated fact. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So what, no. what market was she writing in? Do you remember? She doesn't she say. say she doesn't say okay. she doesn't say I'm assuming it's adult, but that's not necessarily true. It could have been YA, but it comes. But your your comment about the YA and they're almost being a reverse bias in YA that actually was touched up, touched on quite a bit by um, people in the comments of the Jezebel article. So if you scroll through the comments, that actually comes up where people are saying, well, there's a reverse if you, you know, women have an advantage in sort of the YA category well, where, yeah. Or, or yeah, because it's, it's just, 
it's it's an area that is dominated by women. And there certainly are some men who have been, um, you know, um, uh, male authors who have who um, who've done well recently. But um, you see more of them in middle grade as opposed to the YA. Exactly. And I, I would just encourage anybody from a YA standpoint to go to Goodreads and say, do a search on most anticipated books of 2015-16 in the YA category, and you'll get book lists that are 50 books long. I've done this. Mm-hmm. Where I'll get book lists that are 50 books long, and 46 of the 50 books are written by female authors, or or authors with a female pseudonym. Because yeah. I mean, you might not know exactly who's writing the book in some cases, but at least all of the a vast majority. I shouldn't say all. Boy, I have my legal department at work getting all over me right now. Using the word "all," they're all oh, yeah. they're chirping in the back of my heads. But the vast majority of the authors, it'd be a good forty-five to fifty of the books are, are written by uh, by female authors. So very, very interesting thought experiment. Well, there's there's another area too um, that we should probably mention where there is a historical bias for female authors. And it's actually to the point where if you are a male author in this genre, people don't think that men ever write in this genre. And that's not true. There are a number of men of, of men who write in this genre. Um, but every last one of them uses a female pseudonym. That's romance. No, oh, I thought you were going to say porn. No, I was going to say romance. Oh, romance. Although, although you know, considering nowadays, there's a bit of overlap there. I've just seen some of the covers online. My God, the erotica. Well, yeah, that's a that's a different topic. Well, they're, apparently, they're romance, but I I would not have thought that from the covers. But you know, hey, it's not my genre. It's other people's genre. Oh, oh, our conversations, our conversations devolved. So. Um, <laughs> Before before we get into your your interview, your lovely interview with Carrie Vaughn, I'm I'm certain. Uh, anything else we wanna we wanna mention to the listeners? What day? This is dropping Sunday, correct? Yeah, so they need to be watching for you and me on Periscope at WorldCon. They definitely need to be, and uh, since this is dropping Sunday night. Um, you know, so they, there's I, I I can't give you too many details about it, but there's something pretty big happening for me. Um, actually, pretty spectacularly huge happening for me. So um, uh, I, I'm sworn to secrecy till Monday at mid or till till midnight Monday. Um, so midnight Sunday ish, I guess. But uh, check it out online. It involves Xena the war. I mean, this is code word though, right? Oh, Xena warrior Xena, princess. Yeah, yeah, it involves Xena. The warrior princess is code word for the code big, word. Definitely code word. Definitely code phrase, really, for the big event that's happening Sunday evening, going into Monday for Christy. That's right, Xena warrior princess. Yeah. So, all right. Well, that's that's awesome. So until next time, everybody, take care. Bye, guys. This episode is brought to you by Cracking the Sky by Brenda Cooper. Award-winning author Brenda Cooper's first science fiction-only collection treats readers to human stories about the future. In Cracking the Sky, meet a physicist who searches across timelines in a desperate attempt to travel across them herself. A young woman who tries to recover the magic of a trip on a river with her grandfather. A young couple who suspects their neighbor's child is being raised by robots. And many more. This capable collection of hard SF stories focuses squarely on world building, from the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. to the far reaches of space. Cooper works hard to center each piece on a way that technology has influenced human lives. Those who love technology-driven stories will find a lot to like. And James Van Pelt, author of Strangers and Beggars, calls the collection a masterful blend of hard-edged speculation tied to insightful evocations of the human spirit. To learn more, come to the show notes. Episode 311. And click on the image that you'll see for Cracking the Sky by Brenda Cooper. In fact, we're giving away a copy of Cracking the Sky, U.S. residents only. To enter, email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com or share a tweet or Facebook post. And be sure to tag us so we see the entry. So today, I have the pleasure of chatting with New York Times bestselling author Carrie Vaughn. Carrie's probably best known for her Kitty Norvell urban fantasy series about a werewolf disc jockey named Kitty. And if that hasn't sold you, I don't know what will. The series is actually winding up with the 14th book in the city and uh, in the series. 
Kitty Saves the World, which is coming out this August, probably about a week after this show gets aired. Besides being a New York Times bestselling urban fantasy author and self-proclaimed werewolf psychologist, Carrie is also an incredibly prolific and critically acclaimed short story author. In fact, I actually had the chance to meet Carrie back in 2011 at Renovation when her short story Amaryllis was up for a Hugo nomination. And um, now I get to interview you, Carrie, which is going from fly on the wall to interviewee is kind of like the ultimate leveling up. Thank you so much for coming on the show. For those listeners uh, actually coming back on the show, because you got to chat with Sean a few years back. For listeners who aren't already familiar with your work, can you tell us a little bit about what about you and what you write? Well, hi. Thanks for inviting me back on the show. I'm happy to be here. Um, my name's Carrie Vaughn, and I write <laughs> a little bit of everything. Like you said, I'm, I'm best known for the, the urban fantasy series about a werewolf named Kitty. It's been running since 2005 um, is when the first novel came out. So a good 10-year run on that one. The series actually got started as a short story. Um, the, the first uh, short story featuring the character came out in Weird Tales in 2001. Uh, so I've been living with this character kind of a long time. And, and that's kind of how my career trajectory went. I started out in short stories wrote a couple of novels that didn't sell, uh, sold Kitty in the Midnight Hour, the first book in the series, and went on from there. Didn't know if that first book was going to turn into a series, but it did well enough that, that I, I kept writing more books and then more books after that. And then was able to uh, write some other novels and some other worlds after that, which has been an awful lot of fun. Um, I find writing lots of different things keeps keeps me fresh. <laughs> I'm able to come back to the Kitty series and and with a lot more energy by going off and doing other things in between the books. Very cool. So you mentioned that it started off with a short story. Was the short story picked up and somebody said, you know, um, can this be a novel? Or was it an idea you had to turn it into a novel? Um, I had to turn it into a novel. Um, and when the first story was published in Weird Tales, they got a lot of positive feedback, which uh, encouraged me to write the second short story. At that point, I didn't know um, how to turn it into a novel. You know, I had a suspicion that there was a lot of potential there, uh, but didn't really have a hook to anchor a, a novel on. You know, and at first, I didn't have a lot of faith in the idea. It just seemed so off the wall. Having a radio, uh, a werewolf talk radio show advice host was was just ridiculous at, at first. So, so I thought. Uh, so getting the positive feedback on the short stories was really critical because that encouraged me to go back and keep working on the character and keep exploring. And then when I finally did get the hook for the novel, it it all really came together, and it's been great. You know, it, it's one of those those kind of lightning strikes moments that we all dream about and hope for. So with with Kitty Norville, with the character, what is she about? So what was your goal with starting her off as a character? Oh, I had so many different goals. Um, <laughs> I actually started uh, with the radio show. Um, I decided, uh, well, let me tell the whole story. So I was working in a bookstore at the time. And this was in the mid 90s when Dr. Laura Schlesinger was hitting the bestseller list with all of her books, you know, including that that stellar title, 10 Stupid Things Women Do to Mess Up Their Lives. Yeah, I hated that book. I hated that most of the people buying it seemed to be middle aged men um, wanting to give it to their daughters, which I just thought was kind of a horrendous, you know, no wonder your daughters are messing up their lives with this kind of vote of confidence that you're giving them. So it just infuriated me, and I realized that in a world where vampires and werewolves and, and the supernatural was real, uh, they would need their own talk radio advice show, because Dr. Laura just wouldn't be able to cut it, um, and Dr. <laughs> Phil wouldn't be able to handle it. You know, this was kind of at the point where, where the early years of urban fantasy were getting started. I thought if all of these books and all of these other characters are real, they would need help, and so... Uh, I wanted to start a talk radio advice show for them, and um, I needed a host for that show, and that's where Kitty was born. So you can you can see I sort of didn't have a whole lot of faith. It it, it seemed like a gimmick rather than an idea to base you know this whole um, series of novels on. Uh, what I discovered is that through the gimmick, you know, through the the mechanism of the talk radio show, I could actually uh, bring up anything I wanted to. Um, I could tell any kind of story I wanted to. Kitty. You know, by virtue of, of being who she is and, and, and where, you know, being the host of this show, 
I could give her access to all kinds of different stories. And, and it just exploded out from there. So so my first goal was was kind of to hold a mirror up to the whole urban fantasy genre and to, you know, not necessarily make fun of it a little bit, but kind of to uncover some things that I always had questions about. You know, I wanted to kind of ground it in reality a little more than I saw a lot of urban fantasy series uh, doing, you know, make fun of the, the soap opera aspects of, that I saw in, in some of these stories, you know, the, the the terrible love triangles. And, you know, what would you do if you called up Dr. Laura and said, well, I, you know, I've got the vampire on one side, and the werewolf on the other side, and I don't know what to do and the ghosts are haunting the place. And, you know, especially early on in the series, the talk radio episodes were some of the most fun to write. And, and I'm always hearing from people that those were the most fun to read as well. So, you know, that was my first goal. And my second goal was to to have a character who wasn't like a lot of the other characters. You know, Kitty's not violent. Um, she doesn't carry a gun with her. She's not a fighter. Um, you know, she's maybe a werewolf, but she started out at the bottom of the pack. She she's started out as kind of a passive person. So I wanted to have a heroine who talked her way out of problems um, because that was so natural for her being being a talk radio host. You know, I wanted uh, to have have somebody who didn't solve her problems with violence. Um, you know, a, a character, an urban fantasy heroine who who you know, wasn't in law enforcement or wasn't a bounty hunter, you know, wasn't kind of naturally in that thriller mystery mode that that so much urban fantasy started out in. And I was able to do a lot of that. I, I you know, the, the hook that anchored the first book when I finally got, you know, got that together and was able to pull that together was to tell a coming of age story, you know, to start out with this character who was passive and not violent and didn't really have any confidence in herself and have her come of age, have her learn to stand up for herself, learn to take care of herself. Um, and that's the arc for the first book. You know, she goes from from bottom of the ladder um, to being a strong, independent person. And, you know, the trajectory of the whole series kind of went that way. She continues to gain in confidence and strength and influence as the series goes on. It's really interesting listening to you talk about um, the urban fantasy genre and the typical type of female character you get in urban fantasy. Because I'm thinking back to when, when I read the, the first Kitty book and... That was something that really struck me was that you've got this character who's gotten werewolf superpowers and she's she's not violent. She's not automatically going for that. It, it doesn't become the, the crutch of, of mm-hmm. the character, which which is really interesting. And it, it really does set her apart from a lot of the other urban fantasy heroines out there. It's kind of interesting, too, because she's a strong female character. Um, she becomes a leader of her pack. But uh, as the series progresses, but you're not getting, it's not the, the, um, the visual high heeled leather boots, Mm -hmm. um, guns, violence. It's, it's a much more, um, it's much more realistic kind of, kind of strength, which is, is cool to see. That's really what I was trying to do is make her, you know, like the kind of strong women we see in our everyday lives. And I think, you know, the mistake that some people make is conflating strength and violence that strength equals violence, and, and I don't think that's true. You've got another series, which is called... So another series, the first book is After the Golden Age, and mm-hmm. it's it's interesting. I remember picking that book up because I was reading the Kitty series, and I was like, oh, it's, it's another Carrie Vaughn book. And the thing that struck me about it was it wasn't urban fantasy. It fell mm-hmm. into... It falls into this contemporary superhero fiction. On the other hand, it's not your typical superhero fiction. It... it breaks a lot of the molds. What were you trying to achieve? So so first off, what what is that one about? And what were you trying to achieve with that book? Oh, <laughs> mostly I wanted to have a, a lot of fun and tell a really good story and just have fun with it because I love the superhero genre so much. You know, people who read my blog, I'm just, my favorite TV shows right now are, are Arrow and The Flash and I love the Marvel movies. Um, so I'm just kind of going on and on and on about them. So of course I have to do my own take on it. After the Golden Age is about Celia West, whose parents are the the greatest superheroes in Commerce City. She has no superpowers of her own, uh, much to her her parents' kind of chagrin and much to her own shame. And she never gets powers. That's when I say that, that's people's first assumption is, oh, she's going to get superpowers by the end of the book. And she never does. Um, In fact, her teenage rebellion was becoming a henchman of her parents' arch nemesis. (laughs) <laughs> Very briefly, that didn't last long, but that, that was her teenage rebellion, and she's still trying to live it down. 
she's in her mid twenties now, and um, and she's a forensic accountant. Um, so yes, I have uh, a superhero adventure story whose main character is an accountant. Um, her father is almost more chagrined at her being an accountant than not being a superhero. So the story is basically, you know, Celia, who's very cynical about, about superheroes and superheroism in Commerce City, trying to maneuver um, around her parents and her parents' world. Um, while, of course, there's a new supervillain in town who is his, launching his nefarious plan. And she kind of gets caught up in the middle of it, as you would expect. One of the really interesting features of the golden age. Um, and I, I actually, you're talking about Celia's father and there's a fantastic, I, I don't want to put spoilers in, but there's a fantastic scene at the very end. And what yeah. you were saying about him being more upset about her not being a superhero or about being a forensic accountant, um, you know, than anything and there, but there's, um, you know, there's this great scene at the end where you can, you get this insight into, you know, how much he probably wanted her to be a superhero, um, which, which was quite great. But a really interesting feature about the golden age is that the sequel just came out last year as well. And it's not the typical journey that's become really popular right now of one character through, you know, as, as, as Kitty is, um, It's there's a substantial amount of time that passes between books um, and you've got new characters coming in. What and one of the things I I wondered was um, what kind of challenges did you run into with that kind of a choice? Um, If there were any as far as writing or or on the publishing side? Yeah, that's a a good question, because there were a couple of challenges, especially on the publishing side. Um, I hadn't intended on writing a sequel, but it turns out when you end the first book with a baby being born, your first question is what happens to that baby? What what (laughs) happens when that baby grows up? And I, I suddenly realized I had a really natural story here because I'd spent an entire book with Celia as the angst-ridden daughter of problematic parents. So uh, what is Celia going to be like as a parent was the second question that came out of it. And I found out I really wanted the answer to that. Publishing-wise, when I was shopping the novel around, when I was shopping after the Golden Age around, you know, it's very nice because, you know, sometimes you'll shop the book around and you'll get some interest in it. And the first question they ask is, can you write a sequel? Is there a sequel? And in this case, happily, I could say yes. But when I started talking with editors about what I wanted to do for the sequel, which was set at 20 years in the future and have it be about you know Celia's children as much as it was about Celia, I got pushback. I, I in one case in particular, um, you know, after some back and forth with the editor, it was really clear that she wanted me to turn After the Golden Age into another urban fantasy series. Mm-hmm. So your typical, you know, you follow the same character from book to book, first person point of view, and that was absolutely not what I wanted to do with that. Um, so you know, I, I had to turn down an offer because I didn't want to write the book that the editor wanted me to write. Uh, so fortunately, I landed with Tor. You know, I told them what I wanted to do for the sequel, and they're like, "Yeah, great, fine, go for it." Because for me, that was such a more interesting story that you know th- there weren't challenges on the writing side because that was the story I wanted to tell. The challenge would have been if I had given in and tried to turn it into an urban fantasy series with Celia in her mid twenties being the main character again, because I felt like I had already told that story. So, Dreams of the Golden Age. It's twenty years later. Celia's back and you know without going into too much that will spoil the first book (laughs) um, you know she's married she's got a couple of kids and the big question in this book is you know Celia didn't have superpowers do her children have superpowers and it turns out one of them the eldest Anna does have superpowers and she knows how her mom feels about that so she's desperately trying to hide her powers from her mother while her mother is trying to find out if she has powers or not. So that's (laughs) one of the cruxes of of that book, which was a lot of fun. You know, the first book is all from Celia's point of view, but the second book alternates between Celia and Anna. So you can, um, you can get that dynamic from both sides. And and that was a huge amount of fun. I should also mention, well, no, I'm not going to mention that because that's a spoiler for the first book. But (laughs) You know, one of the best reviews of the first book talked about how it's more of a family drama than it is a superhero story. And I tried to do that with the second book as well. It's just as much about the family dynamic as it is about this city where superheroes exist and supervillains exist and all of that typical action adventure stuff is still happening, but against the backdrop of of something that I think that most people can relate to. It's and it's interesting too, um, hearing you talk about how you had one instance where it you had somebody who wanted it to go in an urban fantasy direction because having, um, you know, ha- having read the golden age, what was really, or 
after the Golden Age, what was really interesting about it and what was really compelling about it was it wasn't an urban fantasy and it didn't have that feel and it had much more of a, a contemporary fantasy fantasy feel. So it's it's just interesting listening to you talk about how people had different visions for it. So mm-hmm. and it it became something very cool. Besides your series, you are very prolific in short fiction. I think mm-hmm. I saw that you've got something like seventy short stories. Oh, I just or more it. now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hit eighty this year. You've got your feet well set in both literary and commercial ponds. Um, your your short fiction has been critically acclaimed. Um, you've also been in wild cards as well. Right. Um, what are the big differences and challenges writing-wise between commercial versus literary? Because you're adept at both. So obviously you've, you've figured out, you figured out a way to toe both lines. I think I would use literary maybe a little differently than you're using it because you know, there, there are different markets, you know, the, between short stories and novels. I see them all kind of coming from the same place. You know, the, the short stories can often be a little more experimental and a little more idea driven than the novels are. You know, I also sometimes see it as a continuum. And I don't see it as marketing so much as, you know, what is the tone I'm trying to get across? What is the feeling? What, what's the mood of the piece? Um, who's the audience? Especially for short stories, I'm not thinking of the market so much um, when I write those. I, I write the story I want to write, and then I try to find a market. And in science fiction and fantasy, we're so fortunate that we have a vast market for short fiction. Other genres don't get that. Even highly literary, you know, mainstream, realist-type fiction doesn't have the short fiction market that we do. So I definitely want to take advantage of that. Uh, the other thing that happens is, is um, short stories are part of my novel writing process in a weird way. Every novel I've written, I've gotten stuck on at some point. You know, I've hit a wall. I don't know what happens next. I made, made a mistake and have to go back and fix it. And I will usually take a break for a week or so and write a short story. So, you know, it's very nice to say that I'm prolific, but usually it's an indication of how often I get stuck on my novel writing <laughs> because I take breaks and I write short stories. And, and that's, by the time I'm done with that, I can go back to the novel and my subconscious has worked out whatever problem there is. You know, and however much I write, there's always like 10 other things off to the side waiting to be written that I haven't gotten to yet. So, you know, I got started in short stories. You know, I'm one of those writers. I started writing small and got bigger and bigger and bigger as, as time went on. I love that there are ideas that you can do in short stories that you can't do in novels, I think. And, you know, and Amaryllis is a good example of that. Then, you know, that's another one that maybe someday I'll write a novel set in that world. But right now, it's just really good for me to explore that world in these little little chunks. You know, I'm learning a lot more about it than I would if I think if I sat down and tried to write an entire, you know, world Bible. <laughs> you know, I, I know people do that. They do such extensive world building. And, and it turns out that's not how I write because I want to know, uh, you know, I'm not maybe as interested in the mechanics of the world than I am as in what kind of stories that world produces. And the only way I can find that out is by writing stories about them. And short stories especially are a good way to experiment with that. It's a great way, great thing too, because you end up with, um, you end up producing work out of your, your problem solving method, which, yeah. you know, it's, it's, um, that's fantastic. Are you, and, and this is something a lot of our listeners, um, would be really interested in is, um, do you find that you are a, you tend to do outlines and plots or do you find that you just end up writing the stories like, or do you have a particular pattern? The answer is yes, um, <laughs> which I know is very frustrating. And I, I finally figured out how to describe this because I, I do outlines. I like to know the ending of the story before I start. Um, I, I pretty much have to or else I just go wandering all over creation and that's a waste of time. So I try to know the ending. I try to outline, but the outline is never enough. I always get to a point where the, the outline will, will literally say something cool happens here. <laughs> and then the entire process screeches to a halt and I have to start over. So the way I, I have started looking at it is, you know, those maps you get at the tourist office that aren't very detailed. You know, they, they're kind of in bright colors and they show the streets in very little detail. They'll tell you where the museums are and the restaurants and like the big touristy spots are. So you can take a map like that. And that's kind of how my outlines look, that I know the basic layout. I know the places I want to go look at. 
Um, you know, I know what the landmarks are, but I don't necessarily know how I'm going to get there. And I definitely don't know what I'm going to see along the way. I don't know where the detours are. I don't know necessarily at, at first what the, who the people are like, you know, what the people are like, or, you know, who I'm going to meet on the way. So I, I just kind of take that map and have faith that I will get to where I'm going and I'll see some really cool stuff along the way. That is very cool. A lot of authors seem to have a similar kind of, of way of doing outlines, but it's always it's always cool hearing how you know, how an author is able to create and what their process is. Mm -hmm. So you tend to be in the short fiction and you tend to be in um, the novel writing, commercial, commercial novel writing. How do you like being sort of in both ponds, doing the urban fantasy and also doing the, the short stories? Oh, I love it. It gets me, uh, you know, to use a marketing term, I've diversified my portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> a financial term, you know, I, I think there are people who would argue that I have, you know, quote unquote, diluted my brand. But, you know, for me, it, it's sort of interesting in that from a marketing standpoint, the short stories and the novels don't really cross over. Like, like my book publishers never really cared what I was doing in the short fiction world. And, you know, and vice versa. It's like, you know, sh short story markets are, are often, um, you know, happy to get my stories because I've got the name recognition. But I also find it works both ways. There, there are people who would never in a million years pick up urban fantasy. They just, they don't like the covers. They don't like the look. You know, for whatever reason, they're not the target audience. But if they like my short fiction, they're more likely to pick up one of my novels, even though they say they never read urban fantasy or whatever. And it just, it kind of gets me to the attention of more people. It's, it would be really, really difficult to make a living writing short fiction. There's a lot of people who, who write only short fiction, but they're not, you know, generating a living out of it. You know, income wise, you know, it's, it's not, you know, a huge chunk of my career or whatever, but I find it has opened doors. Um, and, you know, for th anthologies and, and things that do really well, it's, it's just a nice little supplemental thing income wise. And from a critical standpoint, you know, it's gotten me a lot of attention. It's gotten me a lot of, um, you know, I know a lot of people, I've been able to meet a lot of people. Um, and that's been really great, you know, kind of it has, it has given my career a, a little more of a, a critical bedrock, if that makes sense that, that there's, um, you know, a little more attention there from people I wouldn't normally get attention from. It really does make sense. And it's, I think something that you, you pointed out as well is, is the idea that um, it's not so much diluting, it's, it's diversifying and being able to access different audiences. Um, somebody who might not read urban fantasy, but likes your short stories, it's something where they can maybe say, oh, well, you know, reading one of your urban fantasies and seeing what it can do, you know, what uh -huh. uh, some really fantastic urban fantasy is able to offer as opposed to what maybe the, the stereotype is and, and vice versa. I was um, familiar with your, um, you know, with your kitty series uh, because I, I, I read urban fantasy and um, at the time I was reading urban fantasy and I was reading your Amaryllis story because I knew you from, from urban fantasy. And that was something I didn't do very often was read a short story. So it, oh, it yeah. was great having that opened up. So, um, but that's, that's fantastic that you're able to enjoy both areas. It was a decision I made early on, you know, not to write different things under different names. I know this is a big debate that goes on that when you switch genres or you switch modes, you ought to do it under different names. But I grew up, you know, reading authors like C.J. Chera and Orson Scott Card and, you know, Ursula Le Guin and all of these kind of great writers who did everything. Um, you know, they did it all. They did fantasy and science fiction. They did long and, and short. Um, you know, Lois McMaster Bujold has, has done long and short. Um, Connie Willis, you know, just all of these great, great writers. And they were my role models. It's like they were there proving that it could be done, even in today's world, you know, with, you know, so much emphasis on marketing and branding and reaching a, a very specific audience. But I think that can backfire. And I'm seeing that now a little bit because urban fantasy is not the hot, huge genre it was five or seven years ago. You know, it's a much tougher sell now. And I'm, I'm seeing people who are kind of so devoted to urban fantasy that they're having a little bit of trouble you know, reimagining their careers and reimagining what they're going to do. And so they end up kind of doing the same formula over and over and over again um, when they might, you know, benefit from maybe trying short stories in a completely different realm and just seeing where it takes them. One thing you said years ago was that, um, and one thing you told your fans was that um, whenever when we're talking about the ends of the series and such is that mm -hmm. whenever we saw the title Kitty Saves the World, um, everybody would know that was it for the series. Yep. Why <laughs> now? <laughs> Which I, I think is a great, a great way to go out is, you know, cause you can't talk Kitty Saves the World. 
why now? And how does it feel to be the end, be at the end of, of such a huge series? Uh, it, it feels really good. I have finally written scenes that I have been thinking about for maybe not quite 10 years, but close. And that's just a great feeling having that all come together in a way that I wanted it to. It's really interesting, you know, for the last six or seven books, I've the series has been on kind of this long arc. You know, there, each book stands alone. I hope each book stands alone, but there's also this kind of overarching plot. And I knew I, I could not keep that plot going forever. And if you read some of the reviews on the recent books, you'll, you'll see what I mean is that there are readers going, okay, this is really cool, but but we're heading towards something. What are we heading towards? <laughs> you know, how's this all going to wrap up? So it's not something that I could have dragged out forever. I needed to have a big slam bang finish to deal with the arch villain that I've established and to deal with all of this, this um, long game conspiracy storyline that, that I had set into motion. Um, and I wanted to do it a slam bang thing. I didn't want to kind of just have that one peter out and then start up another one and have that one peter out and start up another one. I, yeah, theoretically, I could have kept things going for a long time. Um, but I kind of believe in endings. I believe in, in wrapping things up with a bang. I, I believe in, in kind of giving people that satisfied, yes, these character stories are done and we're happy with it. And it's going to be great. I, I hope it's going to be great. <laughs> this is the point <laughs> the book release is about three weeks away. And I'm at the point now where it's like, okay, <laughs> I'm going to find out if I did it right or not. Yeah. And I've, I've had people who, who kind of are disbelieving that I would wrap the series up, but um, it's definitely time. I don't know what the next book would be, um, which I think is a really good sign that, you know, every book before this, I kind of had a really good idea of, of what the next book would be. I had ideas that didn't fit in the last book, so I bumped them over to the next book. Um, and that went on for, you know, 12, 13 books. And um, and then it kind of stopped. And, you know, I don't want to say the ideas dried up, but I, I sort of felt like um, it just ran out of a little bit of energy, um, at least with this character, is that, you know, I, I'm at the point where I want this character to kind of have, have a nice set of closure, and, you know, a nice piece of closure. And let's see if we can pull that off and how that goes over. I will say, never say never. You know, if, I, if five years goes by and I have a really great idea, I'll definitely tackle that. Um, and in the meantime, I want to do some spinoff stories featuring two of the other characters in, in the book. Um, Cormac, our, our bad boy ex-con. And he's already had a, um, a, a book as well. Yep. yep. That was kind of my test run, just to, you know, proof of concept that, yes, this character can carry a whole book. Uh, and that was Lone Midnight, the one that came out right before um, Saves the World earlier this year, December, in fact. What I would like to do is is do some more of those and kind of spin that off into a more supernatural horror type series. You know, something much more standalone with some more um, emphasis on the mystery side of things. Um, and another character I want to write more about is Rick, who's the vampire who's been a friend of Kitty's ever since the first book. Um, and he's, he's a bit of a favorite, too. I know he's, yes. he's one of mine in the series. Yeah, he's he's the nice guy vampire is what I've been calling him. But, you know, the little hints of his past that we've gotten, he, he came to the New World, you know, as a Spanish settler in the 16th century. He, he was one of Coronado's men during Coronado's expedition north and then became a vampire after that. So he's been in this part of the world for 500 years, and I would love to do something kind of exploring the history of the American West through his eyes since he's been there, you know, for 500 years. He got to see, you know, all of the change and all of the history that happened during that period. One of my favorite things about Rick is that he's almost got, and, and this could be me adding something on that's not there, but he's almost got this very cowboy western type feel to him, mm -hmm. which I always love reading about because it's got that, as, as you point out, it's got that sort of historical right. point in cowboys and westerns and things. So no, that's that's very cool. Um, as as a fan of the series, I'm very excited to hear that you're you're thinking of, of continuing on with, with um, Cormac and Rick. So... One, one question I did want to ask, and this is more going towards the publishing side, is that with the series, you ended up switching publishers part way through near, I guess, near around book 10 or so? Book eight was the first one with the new publisher. What was the reason behind that? Or, or you know, um, what, I guess, what, what was the catalyst between switching? Because it's, again, it's something that, that happens with a lot of writers and a lot of our, mm -hmm. our listeners are, are aspiring authors, but it's not something people talk about a lot is switching yeah. publishers and why. Yeah. And it's funny when it happened, I kind of got a lot of questions and a lot of people going, what happened? Why did 
that's so weird. Why did that happen? But um, but it has happened with other publishers uh, or other authors. You you can kind of see if you line up the whole series and see when the logo changes, you know, on yeah. the spine. Um, and that gives you a good idea of who's who's jumping around. And for me, you know, it was a really mundane reason that we we had uh, we were in the middle of a contract negotiation and got to a sticking point that we couldn't resolve, and so I left. You know, it, it was me saying I can't agree to their terms. And that was it. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> um, you know, it had to had to do with the um, the non compete clause mm-hmm. that they really wanted to lock down on me um, using my name for other books. And this was the time when I was shopping around, you know, after the Golden Age, and also Discord's Apple, you know, my other contemporary fantasy novel. And they they really didn't want me doing anything that would, you know, in in their terms, you know, they they wanted me to write Kitty, and that was they wanted my name to be associated with Kitty and nothing else. And I, like I said, I had this vision for my career where I'm, you know, one of those great authors that I grew up admiring who could do anything. That was really important to me. So um, I left. But yeah, the series landed with Tor, who not only was okay with me doing other things, they actually published my other novels that I wanted to do. So, you know, they, they were fine about wanting me to do multiple things, which just goes to show you that, that you know, it's, it's kind of fashionable to talk about, you know, the big six, big five publishers as if they are some monolithic thing and they're all out to get us or whatever. But they all kind of have a different philosophy and a slightly different way of, of operating. And they, they all, um, you know, it, and it was yet a different publisher um, who I turned down the offer for After the Golden Age because they wanted an urban fantasy series and I didn't want to write that. So, you know, it's not monolithic. You're, you're going to have different experiences with everybody. Different writers have different experiences with the same publisher. So for me, it was it was a matter of having a really clear idea of what I wanted out of my career and then making sure I didn't compromise on that. And, and went on to find a publisher who was who was okay with my vision for my career. I, I think it's really important for, for authors um, who are listening out here to hear those kinds of stories um, mm-hmm. from writers such as yourself because it, it ends up getting thrown into a bit of a black bo- box about, well, what if you don't? What if you don't want your career to go that direction? Or yeah. what if you want something else for yourself? So that's, it's actually very cool to hear that, that story. What can we expect from Kitty in this installment without too many spoilers, which might not oh, be possible? Gosh. <laughs> yeah, I, it's been really hard to talk about. Um, you know, I, I've been getting asked about it. And um, yeah, I, there's not a lot I can say because I, I want so much of it to be a surprise for people when they read it because, you know, I built in these little kind of explodey, surprisey bits. And, and so I have to be careful. I had a lot of fun bringing in some old faces from previous books. Um, that I hope people will enjoy seeing. Uh, so it really is kind of a, you know, bring the whole gang together to uh, fight the big battle, <laughs> you know, as, as everything converges. Uh, we find out some things about, you know, some of the characters that we've been following for the last few books. There's a couple of really big battles. There's Kitty getting into trouble, <laughs> like usual. I hope people like it. <laughs> One thing that um, you you often do in your novels is because Kitty's a DJ, you'll often stick in a playlist. Readers can sort of search and listen for while they're they're reading if they want. Um, it's something I, I really enjoyed with the books because it's sort of that added added coolness and and Kitty factor. Um, is there a preview you can give us or a favorite song that might be in a playlist for this book? Oh, I definitely can. In fact, I'm probably going to post the whole playlist as a preview in a week or so. So by the time this goes live, your listeners can go to my blog and hopefully find the whole playlist. But yeah, I, I'm kind of being a little mean because the first song on the playlist is the Traveling Wilburys End of the Line. Oh, cool. Um, which is a little bit of a joke. It, it's sort of, uh, you know, I wanted to kind of give people a little bit of a ribbing on that one. But it's also a great song. It's, it's one of my favorite songs. So I have a friend who had this crazy garage band um, in high school. And I kind of joked with him that if he ever did up a website for his crazy garage band and put up the songs, you know, he had some recordings in a way that people could actually access them if they saw the playlist and Googled it and and could find the songs, that I would put one of his old crazy garage band songs on a playlist. And he did. He did get the website up. So there is one of the songs from his crazy garage band. The song is called uh, The Song That Will Get Us the Parental Advisory Sticker. Um, and it's great. 
Uh, it has one word through the entire thing, just repeated over and over and over again. Um, I will leave that word as an exercise uh, for the listener. So that's on there. Um, I I actually, um, uh, there's a couple of local bands that I used songs from. We have a great acapella group here in Denver called Pandora Celtica. And I saw them in concert as I was writing the book. And one of their songs just reached out and grabbed me. So I put that on the playlist. I tried to be epic on this one. You know, I tried to uh, match the tone of the book like I always do. I I try to imagine the playlist being the soundtrack. Yeah, I, I think people like it. I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to listening to it. And for, um, for you listeners out there, we will do our best to link to it, um, to link to Carrie's blog so that you guys can find it too. You've been very, very generous with your time tonight and so close to the release date as well. Last, last things, places, people can find you, upcoming appearances. Kitty Saves the World is coming out August... Is August 4th. August 4th. I was right. Yeah. I was going to say August 4th. Any conference, um, conference or tour dates coming up as well? Or Yeah, I, I don't have a lot of um, appearances this time around. I do have some conventions. I'll be at Bubonicon in Albuquerque, which I think is the last weekend of August. And then the week after that, I'll be at DragonCon in Atlanta, which is huge. So I'm yeah. into a lot of people there. Yeah, if any of our listeners are lucky enough to be going to DragonCon, um, definitely go, go try and find Carrie and, um, and check out um, Kitty Saves the World. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm glad I could be here. And can't wait to read Kitty. Yay! I hope you (laughs) liked it. (laughs) Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast.